Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today's Monday, December 18th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. There are many sides to Bradley Tusk. Yeah, how, how much time you got? You've got the political operative. He was the communications director for New York Senator Chuck Schumer during 9-11, the deputy to disgraced former Illinois governor Rod Bogoyevich, and the campaign manager for New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg during his 2009 re-election. There's also the consultant and venture capitalist. He made big money helping Uber break into cities across the U.S., and now invests in startups in sectors like finance and healthcare. And then there's the author. He has written an entertaining new book called Obvious in Hindsight that imagines a political brawl over legalizing flying cars. What I'm really trying to do is show people, show readers, how and why decisions actually get made in politics, in tech, in venture, but in a way that is, you know, entertaining. Though the novel is technically satire, it's not hard to see the fact through the fiction. Yeah, so somebody asked me, who helped you the research? I said, what research? I just basically lived all of this, right? There's like, you know, occasionally maybe Google, I don't know. On the show today, Bradley tells me more about the book and weighs in on tech fights happening both on and off the page. Which version of Bradley Tusk am I talking to today? Oh, that's a good question. Um... I think you were talking to uh, the version of Bradley Tusk that is both excited to get to do all these things and at the exact moment we're recording, feeling slightly overwhelmed by all of it. That's yeah. It seems like you sort of live in that uh, chaos and cacophony of of wearing multiple hats. Right. I mean, I, I think probably like like you and and most listeners, um, when things are at all quiet, all I want is for them to be really, really busy and active. And then at some point, everything gets busy and active at the same time. And I'm like, what happened to the quiet? So like, you know, I'm I'm, I'm always on the wrong side of the field, basically. Right. No, I, I, I hear you on that for sure. Well, let's talk about your latest venture here, which is this novel you've written called Obvious in yeah. Hindsight, which is a satire. But uh, I've got to say the reality yeah. certainly leaps off the page uh, <laughs> when you read it at many points. I, I want to get some of your thoughts and opinions on regulation and tech and some of these sure. topics that we're all talking about every day, because there is a line on the very first page of the book um, that distills politics down to this central idea, which is that politicians are motivated by reelection, and that's sort of all you need to know to persuade them to do what you want them to do. Do you view kind of what's happening right now around AI, all of this focus on and talk about regulation, do you view it in those terms? Yeah. I mean, I think in the sense of, you know, I've worked in just for the listeners to know, I've worked in city government and state government and federal government. I've worked in the executive branch. I've worked in the legislative branch. I've run electoral campaigns. I really do feel like I've seen this from pretty much every possible angle. Um, and politicians run for office because they desperately need validation and attention. Um, that is what motivates the vast, vast majority of them to run and to keep running for office. And the decisions that they make are based on a few things. One, Will this help me win re-election? Two, if I don't do this, could it cost me re-election? And three, can it give me the ego boost and attention and validation that I need? So when it comes to AI right now, I saw a poll recently that people said of, of like the top 15 issues, AI was like number 12 or number 13. And 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 because of that, 
it's not an electoral issue right now. It, it's a it's an opportunity to get attention, right? Mm. So you know, no one at the moment is going to the voting booth and saying, "I'm going to vote for against this assembly candidate or U.S. senator, whoever it is," uh, based on their stance on AI. So really, it's kind of all upside of like. Hey, can I use AI to get attention for myself? So the guy that's doing that the most in Washington is Chuck Schumer, uh, who I used right. to be his. I was Chuck's communications director, so I kind of know the, I know the secrets behind the uh, behind the veil pretty well. Um, and yeah, I, look, Chuck doesn't fundamentally have, in my experience, deep views on technology policy one way or the other. Uh, but he has the best nose for how to get attention of of pretty much anyone in the business. And he recognizes that if he says the words AI, it's a shiny toy, and you guys all come running towards it and give him attention. And therefore, that's what's driving most of this right now. So it's a PR exercise, not a regulatory exercise at this point. For now. I mean, the reality is we don't really know how to regulate AI, right? So clearly, with the exception of generative AI, every AI company, every one of my portfolio is is still in a different industry, right? Health tech, legal tech, whatever it might be. Those are two particular investments we've made recently. And yes, there might be AI rules that, that do govern them one day, but they're also still subject to all of the normal rules and regulations and laws and statutes that govern their field. That's basically what there is right now to both evaluate and regulate AI companies. Um, at some point, it will become clear that uh, there are additional regulations needed. And, and you probably remember the White House issued this very vague executive order a, a month or two ago that that just kind of said like, you hey, thought it, You thought companies. it was vague? A lot of people said it was very detailed. I mean, it was – it had no teeth. It, it can't do anything. Uh, right. right. It can't, it's not so enforceable. So yeah. Maybe may, may vague is the wrong word. But like – it was like a it was a, it was another press release, right? And it was like a statement of principles, like sure. you shouldn't do bad things to your country. Um, that was basically what it said, with a lot of words around it. Right. But they have no way to enforce any of it, which means it's completely meaningless in the real world. Um, so yeah, I mean, right now, one, there is no real sense of how to regulate AI, and two. We haven't regulated Internet 2.0 yet, right? Sections 230 is still alive and well. There's no data privacy framework in this country. Antitrust laws are still fairly undefined and weak. So, you know, could I see Europe just like, you know, getting getting more advanced on AI regulation at some point? Absolutely. But for the U.S., the notion that's anything more than a PR stunt to me is is totally unrealistic. Well, what's one of the things I think is sort of interesting about uh, you and some of your views is you're an investor. You bet money on some of these tech companies, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you are also sort of pro-regulation. You know, you think mm -hmm. tech, the tech industry has been under-regulated. How do you sort of circle that square? Are you a, an anomaly among your no, VC I, friends? Um, I, yeah, in the sense that I think they're all supposed – they all think they're supposed to say that they hate regulation and hate government. But But the reality is this. First of all – Every industry needs a certain amount of regulation and structure, right? Otherwise, it's the complete wild west, and, and there's nothing to separate the good actors from the bad actors, the successful companies from the failed companies, or, or anything else, right? And so one is like if you are a SEC-regulated credit investor like we are, uh, of course you want some level of regulation because you want to invest in markets that have rule of law. 
right? So that's number one. Um, but number two, I am an early stage investor. So my fund invests in seed and series A companies. So that's pretty early in the life cycle. Our average check size is typically one to $7 million. So pr- pretty small checks. Um, and we're looking at the disruptors, not only of entrenched in- industries and interests like taxi or hotel or casinos, but these days, uh, the incumbents to me are Amazon and Microsoft and Meta and Apple and Google. And are they tech companies? Yes, but they have as much in common with a Series A startup as this, like, you know, microphone I'm speaking into or the spindrift that I'm drinking right now, right? So um, to me, when there is a failure to enforce antitrust laws and companies like that are allowed to have monopolistic power over industries, it really hurts early stage startups and investors because I can't invest in a potential competitor to any of these companies because right now there's no way um, that they could realistically compete. Like, yeah, it's possible that Amazon or somebody might buy a startup that you invest in, but there's a much better chance that they'll either squash them or just build the same thing themselves. And so absent regulation, absent antitrust enforcement, um, I think that you are really depriving the economy of a new breed uh, of companies in these sectors. Um, and then eventually, when Meta, when Google, when Microsoft grow old and stagnant, and I know it seems inconceivable, but if you look at every successful company over the past you know, 100 plus years, it's exactly what eventually happens. Um, either there will be competitors to step up and take their place and create new jobs and innovation and everything else, or there won't be because we had a corrupt unregulated economy. And that's why I think, generally speaking, Lena Khan is on the right track with this stuff. Right. I know, I know you're a, a supporter of, of Lena Khan, and you're also um, opposed to Section 230 or, or think it needs to at least be reformed to a large degree. This is the internet liability law, which Google yeah. and Meta love, sort of see as the heart of the internet. What what do you, would you change about 230 or, or what do you want to see Washington do? I would repeal it. So for the listeners, most of us will probably already know what 230 is for this podcast, but it, it, it's a law that, that was passed as part of the Communications Decency Act in 1996. And what it says is that internet platforms are not liable for the content posted by its users, which in 1996 made a lot of sense. You needed that kind of liability protection to get the internet off the ground, but no one had any concept of social media um, at that time. Now, the most powerful, influential companies in the world and communications platforms in the world are the social media platforms, um, and they have a perverse economic incentive, which is, you know, Google and Meta, like X, like those are advertising companies, right? They make the vast, vast majority of their money because advertisers pay to reach their customers, um, and Sadly, and this is just a facet of human nature, and I'm sure we all wish this weren't the case, but negative content just drives more eyeballs and therefore more clicks and therefore more advertising revenue than positive content, right? And so, you know, the platforms have every economic incentive possible to promote the most toxic content possible. And if that weren't true, you wouldn't be seeing all the horrific um you know, an untrue uh, propaganda about the Middle East on TikTok right now. You know, teenage girls wouldn't on Instagram be able to access groups that tell them how to cut themselves or how to purge, right. how to be, you know, a bulimic or, or, or anything else like that. Um, Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it now wouldn't be this, this cesspool that has just sort of really reduced both politics and journalism to the lowest common denominator possible. Um, the reason all that happens is because it's in their economic incentive for that to be the case, because that's what generates the most revenue. The only thing that would change that is if all of a sudden 
they did have to start moderating content in the way that newspapers, the way that Politico, um, you know, for example, Fox News uh, said a lot of things about Dominion, which is a voting company that were untrue. Dominion had the ability to sue. They recovered almost $800 million, and that will have a meaningful chilling effect in a good way of platforms like Fox or others making blatantly untrue statements uh, about private industry. Um, and that enforces good behavior. We should have that with the internet as well. Those same Dominion lies propagated on every social platform possible with no repercussions for the platforms that were propagating them um, because they're immune. And so if you want to get them to change their behavior, you got to change their economic incentives, right? So in the same way that the tobacco litigation in the 1980s materially changed the way that industry sort of approached American consumers and customers, um, if all of a sudden Meta's getting smacked with five, $10 billion lawsuits left and right from, from plaintiff's attorneys all over the country, then the money they have to spend defending these lawsuits and paying the judgments and dealing with the appeals and everything else starts to add up. And they have to start asking themselves, do I really want to keep promoting all this toxic content at the expense of constantly being legally liable for it? And if you want to have true inter internet content moderation that is reasonable and protects children and others, repealing Section 230 is the only way to do it. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. Well, you also have this idea for making, you know, for forcing big tech to change that we've talked about yeah. a little bit before this, which is using pension funds, right, to kind yeah. of apply yeah. financial pressure, affect kind of the business model you're talking about. Walk me through that pitch, because I, I had not really heard this before, and I, I think it's an interesting idea. Thank you. So, so look, there's three different ways that government can try to deal with the scourge of social media. So the, the first is legislative and executive branch. But as we've seen, like Section 230, despite the fact that in 2020, both Biden and Trump called for its repeal on their platforms, it's gone absolutely nowhere. The, the second is the, you know, using litigation. And a lot of state attorney generals, I think, have done a very admirable job filing suit against a lot of the platforms and pursuing it. Uh, the only problem is at the end of the day, these tend to amount to like $5 billion settlements, which are kind of a slap on the wrist for the menace of the world. Um, and they pay the fine and they just go about their business and nothing really changes. Um, but if you look just to using Meta's example here, 64% of their shares are institutionally owned. Public pension funds, which I think overall in this US control over $5 trillion uh, worth of equities, um, you know, between direct investments in the platforms and indirect in all the different money managers, whether Vanguard or Fidelity or BlackRock or whoever it is, who then own large chunks of shares of the platforms, you know, have a materially amount of ownership um, over these com companies. You can't, through a normal shareholder action, force Mark Zuckerberg to do anything because he has this dual class shareholder model where he basically controls you know, all the actual votes that matter on anything. So it doesn't really matter how many shareholders you get upset. But um, if the 10 biggest pension funds, all, uh, public pension funds all came together and said, you know what? 
we want to see you um, make these reforms to content moderation. We want to see you stop promoting these types of content. We want to see you stop targeting kids in these ways. We want these restrictions on advertising. And if you don't do it, we're divesting, right? And we're ordering all of our money managers to divest. And all of a sudden, Facebook's looking at you know a double-digit divestment in one day. That is calamitous for their share price. Um, it's calamitous for Zuckerberg's personal net worth. It's calamitous for their employees. And I think they're forced to the table. Um, and so to me, perhaps the most powerful people in government to deal with the problems that we have social media right now aren't the president or senators or governors or even attorney generals. It's controllers. And so do they have the incentive to do that? Because, I mean, these tech companies, even after a hard year, are still cash cows. You know, they're still lucrative investments um, for for their shareholders. Yeah. So, Well, the question is, there's the economic incentive and the political incentive, right? So the economic incentive, yeah, I, I think that um, – a lot of pushback would come from the pension fund saying, look, you know, Meta is a big performer for us. We can't possibly divest from it. Um, and you know who that will really be an issue for is Democratic controllers, because the labor unions whose political support they rely on are those whose pension funds are being invested. And if the labor leader said, yeah, we're not willing to take this kind of financial risk. Um, and if you do this, we're going to support someone else in the next election, in the next primary. They may think twice. But Republican controllers who don't get support from labor to begin with actually are kind of immune from that, right? And so maybe we never would have thought that the controllers in states like Texas and Florida, you know, Georgia would be the heroes of the internet. But I think they actually are well primed to be. But the more important question, I think, is the political ramifications. And if you look at polling across the board, people are really concerned about social media. And, and I think that this is one of those issues that unites parents across the entire ideological spectrum. The most MAGA person and the most sort of DSA person, if they've got teenage kids, if they've got kids probably over the age of five or six, they're worried about this, right? Because no matter where you are politically, you don't know how to control this. And like, I think about my own kids who are 17 and 14, pre-COVID, I felt like maybe we had some ability to influence what they saw and didn't see online. And once COVID happened and all of their schooling was just merged with all of their online activity, we lost control completely. And I have yet to meet a parent right. that now feels like they have that level of control unless your kid's really young. And so I think that this is going to be a wildly popular issue politically across the spectrum. And at the end of the day, controllers are politicians. Uh, they want to do things that they think are societally meaningful. They want to get attention. They want to get credit. And therefore, it is in their political interest to choose to act in this way. Right. As you, as we were saying earlier, sort of re-election is the motivator. Then, then you sort of see this as a politically uh, viable uh, yeah, point, ab absolutely. I mean, I mean, the the you know the main tenet of of the novel is every policy output is the result of a political input. Like you said, every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else. And if they think that doing what you want can help them win their next election, or not doing what you want could cost them their next election, they will work with you. And if they don't think that, they won't. And in my experience, it's as simple as that. As an investor yourself, how much of your own sort of investment ethos or your decisions on what companies to back or not back is sort of driven by some of these political or, or ideological kind of views on on tech and, and what's good and beneficial and what's harmful? 
Yeah, I mean, look, we're not very little. So we're not an ESG fund, right? We are not some kind of fund that is designed to be broadly beneficial for society. We are a fund that is designed to generate the highest returns possible for our LPs, and that's what we do. Um, However, most of the views that I'm expressing, I think, not only are my personal ideological views, but they reflect the best interests of early stage tech companies overall, because everything we're talking about are the harms committed by half a dozen massive platforms that are the biggest companies in the world. And they're the companies that my companies, if if I could feel comfortable investing in challengers to this in this sector, should be trying to take down, should be disrupting. And so I think that at least, and I'm sure one obviously shapes the other, but you know, what would be in the best interest of, of innovation or early stage tech investing and my personal views on issues like Section 230 or antitrust or you know data privacy actually are very aligned. Well, listen, Bradley, uh, interesting book, and thank you for being here on Politico Tech. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow.